these events were imaginable and imagined and warned about, and for various reasons, people ignore those warnings. This is the Let me assert my Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode six of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. And it's uh, yet another Sunday here in Stockholm as part of this uh, Corona spring that uh, we're living through. And it kind of adds to the surreal feeling that you get uh, when you look at what's going on around the world, seeing these scenes of misery, the heroic efforts by doctors and nurses and hospitals in Stockholm and all over, all over the world. Yet uh, here on the ground in Stockholm, it's uh, it's been beautiful. It's been one of these weather patterns where we're getting sun every single day. A strange contrast in uh, the world that, that, that we live in and the world that we see on TV and around us beyond our immediate environment. And on the phone line, we have Dr. Charles Parker, an associate professor at Uppsala University in uh, political science and international relations. I should also mention we have Mark Vandenbosch, not on the phone line today, but here in the studio in the flesh, as you like to say. In real life. So what we're going to do, we're going to do things slightly differently today on this episode. We're going to talk to Charles uh, as our expert guest. We're also going to integrate Charles into the introduction discussions here that uh, Mark and I like to do. Mark's 360 of uh, (laughs) observations from around the world on the coronavirus in the last 24 hours. So Charles, welcome to the program, and uh, please feel free to weigh in uh, at any point. Okay, so Mark, let's uh, let's get a rundown of some of the things that sure, you'll be tracking. Sure, a bunch of stuff, as usual, uh, as far as the unintended consequences, which I'd like to bring up. Benefits to the environment, but also how nature is sort of coming back, taking over some of the places man has inhabited for a long time. There's some pictures of wild cashmere goats taking over towns in northern England as the people have left the streets and are hunkering at home, sheltering in place. And now the wildlife is taking over the city. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's pretty interesting. There's, there's a field of, uh, of research called rewilding. That's and what's happening. It's a rewilding but in, in a way that perhaps we didn't uh, anticipate. Uh, it's been a kind of a trend for a long time now as uh, farmland in much of the uh, industrial world is, is abandoned. There is a sort of a, a push of wildlife closer and closer to cities. Animals that you never saw before, like turkeys and coyotes, uh, where I come from in the Boston area. This is perhaps taking it to the next level. Other aspects of uh, what's going on in the world relating to some of the discussions we'll have with Charles, who's an expert in mitigation strategies and crisis management. He's going to talk a lot about something called the five failures. One of those failures is the failure of learning. This failure of learning is something that mankind has been very good at for a very, very long time. (laughs) People like you and other academics have probably for hundreds of years, if not millennials, taken this up. One of the things in play right now from a news perspective is that we got caught flat-footed in the United States and other parts of the world during the Ebola crisis. So as a result of that, some administrations around the world, including in the United States said, never again. And they created authorities or branches of government that were going to address some of these issues. Some of these institutions have actually been dismantled since then. Yeah, there's a good example of that in California, actually. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was talking about climate change, he was one of the more progressive governors and responding to the warning on that and trying to do something. But he also, in 2006, he uh, took notice of the avian flu that was breaking out. And he decided to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a number of medical investments that could be deployed, not just for 
for epidemics, but also for natural hazard events like earthquakes, fires. And one of the things that they did was that they had stockpiles of supplies in mobile hospitals. But then, of course, the giant recession in California, when Jerry Brown took over as governor, he was looking at a $26 billion deficit. Los Angeles Times has just reported that one of the ways he went to save money was getting rid of these stockpiles which were actually not that expensive. They were costing $5.8 million. You can see that even when governments and officials make wise decisions, sometimes they get undone for short-term economic reasons. Exactly. In the United States, there was this thing called the National Security Council Global Health Office that was put together by Obama after he got a lot of criticism for not being ready for Ebola. And uh, a couple years later, the Trump administration dismantled it. And there's tons of these kinds of examples throughout the world. And once again, we, we just never seem to learn. All right, we get uh, Dr. Charles Parker on the phone line uh, today on this episode of uh, Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, uh, giving some news, some 360 news from Mark. And uh, soon we'll get into the uh, analysis of uh, your perspectives, uh, Charles, on uh, the crisis management aspects of this, based on an article that you wrote together with Bank Sundelius, one of the gurus of uh, crisis management here in Sweden, and sort of applying this model to uh, what we're experiencing here with the uh, coronavirus crisis. So, Charles, why don't you give us a quick rundown on how this article informs how a crisis such as the coronavirus uh, should and could be managed? Yes, both Bank and I are involved in the Center for Natural Hazards and Disaster Sciences, and together we wrote a chapter in a book, Collaborative Crisis Management, and we were writing about how to avoid the failures of collaborative crisis management and some of the lessons from practice and research that we see, common types of mistakes, and some of the ways to overcome those. The corona COVID-19 pandemic is definitely a crisis. It has all the components. It's a threat to core values, the safety and security of people, the functioning society. We really require urgent action, and it has to be dealt with when there's still a lot of uncertainty. And we know that there's a number of typical challenges that have to be overcome when it comes to crisis management. First, you'll have to get on the same page, decide what the problem is and what to do about it. You have to coordinate, cooperate, communicate, bring all the relevant players to work together so they can respond appropriately, take the right actions by the proper actors. Then you have to mobilize your resources, distribute those resources along clear decision-making structures and procedures. And that's uh, easy to say, hard to do. (laughs) Another thing I've written a lot about is these uh, foreseeable surprises, warning response problems. So writing about September 11th, together with you and Eric Stern, writing also about Hurricane Katrina, why people were not so prepared for that. And then also the ash cloud event in 2010, 2011. There's two different ash cloud from Icelandic volcanoes. So these are often events that people should have seen coming. We often call these as failures of imagination. When you look into them, usually these events were imaginable and imagined and warned about. And for various reasons, people ignore those warnings. I think, of course, Trump, his sort of slow realization that this actually was a crisis and needed to be taken more seriously than he was, is a good example of this. He, of course, has this quote from question and answer of this coronavirus task force where he said that no one knew there'd be a pandemic or an epidemic of this proportion. No one has seen anything like this before, which, of course, is not accurate. We have a number of real-world events. Pandemics actually happen quite often. So there's been some discussion about whether this is a black swan or a, a gray rhino, but uh, it certainly is something that uh, in history happens regularly, and there has been a lot of long-term warming, recent events, and then a lot of specific warning. I guess it's also a matter of time and scale, though, right? I mean, 
certainly, I mean, in my lifetime, we're about the same age. In our lifetime, all three of us, uh, this is the biggest event by far that I've experienced. There have, Indeed. as you mentioned, there has been certainly pandemics before, or let's say different contagious disease outbreaks, SARS, MERS, uh, Ebola. And of course, it's been 100 years since the Spanish flu, which perhaps is, is comparable to this one in terms of scale. In terms of responding to something, one of the things we've talked about here as well is that other countries that had more maybe direct impact by SARS uh, 15 or so years ago, China, Korea, other countries in Asia, maybe they were better prepared because they had that more in-their-face experience, that real on-the-ground experience of that, that maybe didn't reach Europe and the United States to quite the same degree. Is that is that a fair comparison? I think it is a fair comparison. And then if you're looking at some of the reasons of why people are not receptive to warnings, one of the explanations is you can have an overconfidence in your current policy. If you weren't bit to the same degree as other countries were, you may think, well, this is like SARS. We actually weren't affected by it that much. And it's kind of interesting. There's the recent discussions about like, you know, was Trump warned sufficiently? And some people pointed to this interview that Anthony uh, Fauci gave, who's on the Corona Task Force and one of the top health officials. It was in January and he was asked whether this would be a serious threat for the uh, U.S. public. And at that point, he said, no, they shouldn't be fearful. And that, of course, prediction looks rather bad in retrospect. But on the other hand, I went back and listened to the whole interview because I saw that some people in the right-wing media were using this as sort of a get-out-of-free-jail card for President Trump. And actually, if you listen to all his remarks, he also said that even though the American public shouldn't be seriously worried or fearful at the moment, he said that public officials, health officials should be, that it was an evolving situation. And then he also said that this was something that would be a threat to the U.S., either now or in the future, and preparedness was very important. So I actually have a quote in front of me here from this guy, uh, Luciana Borio, who's director of the Medical and Biodefense Preparedness of National Security Council. And in 2018, he said very specifically, a flu pandemic was the country's number one health security threat and that the U.S. was not prepared and that we cannot stop this at the border said it very, very specifically. And I'm sure there's tons of other examples like that. There's lots of examples. The New York Times has been doing good reporting about this, that actually Trump's own officials, to their credit, they did one of these exercises called Crimson Contagion, which uh, modeled a pandemic. And they also found that the U.S. was unable to handle it. So this was a warning. We also see regular warnings in this World Economic Forum. They do their global risk reports. Pandemics are almost always in their top 10. They were in the top 10 this year. And this Global Health Security Index, they did a big report in October of 2019, and they basically said that no country in the world was prepared to handle an epidemic or a pandemic, and that everyone's medical systems would be very hard-pressed to deal with this, to prevent, detect, or respond to any significant disease outbreak. You know, when we talk about the corona crisis, there are many facets to this, and I think there's the social, psychological, human aspect, and we are, by nature, as a species, fairly optimistic, and I think that's what allows us to achieve as much as we have from a progress perspective. But isn't this sort of the same issue when you say to people, don't build your house next to that cliff because you're going to have erosion and in 20 years it will fall in the ocean. But people still build their million dollar houses there. Isn't this what this is about? That's called an optimism bias and that's a tendency to overestimate our likelihood of experiencing a positive event. 
and underestimate the likelihood of negative events. So that's the individual biases. And then when it comes to the policy world, we have the overvaluation of past success, where we assume like, well, MERS and SARS and these other things, Ebola didn't end up biting us that bad. So you know, we'll probably be able to cope with this. And then the overconfidence in the policy that you actually have, and that can tend to make you insensitive to warnings that are critical, can also make decision makers insensitive to expert judgment, which is what we see here. And that's sort of my prescription for these receptivity problems, failures of imaginations, to be receptive to changes in your environment, listen to warnings, listen to expert advice. Even if the experts, you know, as I said, you can sometimes have some dissension. But when it comes to this issue, the basic advice about public health, which is to act earlier, so act quickly and decisively, it's easier to ratchet back the measures than to ramp them up. Right, but isn't this all also about market forces? Because ultimately, if we were more realistic in terms of the threats around us, we would obviously dare to do far fewer things. And that in and of itself would have an impact on economic growth. So on some level, and this is sort of the major dilemma that the whole world has right now, is the, the cure worse than the disease from an economic perspective? That's a discussion, but I think now people do have to start making trade-offs of those types. But I'm not sure that that's really the choice. So we talk about these success stories, and this is all provisional. I mean, this is going to be an ongoing challenge for the next year, 18 months. Even the countries that are doing well are going to have a continuing struggle. So we have Taiwan, we have South Korea, we have Singapore, we have Hong Kong. They have not had to shut down their economies, and they've still been successful with the containment strategies. If your containment and suppression strategies don't succeed, then you have more of these trade-offs, either or, where the economic considerations are going to get sacrificed in the mitigation strategies, which we see happening in the U.S. very dramatically, right. Spain, Italy, France. All right, Chelsea, why don't you give us a, a brief outline on the main points of your article, some of these five failures and how we can uh, we can look at those in the context of the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, we have five failures. We have failure of imagination, which are foreseeable surprises and the receptivity problems, prescription for that, which is be receptive to changes in your environment, listen to warnings, listen to expert advice. We have the failures of credibility. Very important to invest in prompt meaning making, so to be clear, concise, and provide accurate information. Uh, we have uh, failures of initiative, uh, which is a failures to act, so failures of containment and suppression and failures of mitigation. In this case, uh, the prescription for that is to mobilize capacity and push to overcome capacity deficits. In addition to that, we have uh, failures of coordination and cooperation. Prescriptions for that is to prepare for interagency and cross-sectoral, multi-level, and transboundary coordination. And of course, finally, we have our failures of learning. There we have the prescription, which is disseminating, and if possible, institutionalizing and then acting on lessons learned. So if we think about the first one, the receptivity problem, this is this idea that it's hard for people to think of things outside of their own expectations and what they expect. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll see it when I believe it. The one we talked about when it comes to uh, failures of initiative and overcoming capacity deficits. Here I often talk about the golden rule. The persons with the gold make the rules. So you have to decide where you can invest your resources. And then Mark had earlier talked about failures of learning. So perhaps you can apply this, uh, some of these insights, uh, Charles, into the current situation with the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's quite clear that the slow response in the U.S., that there's a lot of evidence that there were warnings given to Donald Trump and he had a hard time taking them seriously. And he obviously had a flu model in his mind, 
and had a hard time getting uh, shaken out of that. And this, of course, leads to these failures of credibility and you hear false statements. And it's okay to try to calm people, but you shouldn't say things that are false. For example, that anyone who wants to get a test can get a test, these type of things. So the prescription about investing in prompt meaning making, be clear, concise, and provide accurate information. And we have some good examples of that. Singapore actually has a system that's up and running where they have detailed anonymized information about the COVID-19 cases that's shared publicly, prevents speculation, and then misinformation is quickly debunked and clarified on a government website. And I think that's good. Failures of initiative, I talked about that. We have, for example, shortages of everything in the U.S., ventilators, masks, gloves, gowns, and no national emergency system to provide fast supplies. So if you look at this prescription, which is mobilizing capacity, we actually see that the governments that have been handling this most effectively, such as South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, they actually very quick about getting out the testing, doing things. So public screening in Singapore, mass fever screening, thermal temperature scanners, distributing supplies, taking action, testing, contact tracing, isolation. And that's the things that have worked. Uh, we have the failures of coordination and cooperation. And the prescription there is, of course, to prepare for interagency, cross-sectoral, and transboundary coordination. One of the examples of where that worked well was, once again, Singapore, which actually had a multi-ministry task force that was set up even before Singapore had its first COVID-19 case. And this allowed them to coordinate this whole of government response. And in contrast, we see a lot of the disorganization, dysfunction in the U.S., a lot of bureaucratic infighting, very slow to actually mobilize a task force, and then very slow to take action. And then you have like a cascade of surprises. Unfortunately, surprise begets surprise. So the testing failure in the U.S., even in the worst case scenarios, no one expected their test not to work. And one of the things we don't know yet is why they didn't use this WHO test to begin with. Finally, our failures of learning, we can see that a lot of lessons from SARS has been implemented in Singapore. The Prime Minister of Singapore was interviewed by Fareed Zakaria, and uh, he discussed how their current preparations and planning are based on the painful lessons of 17 years ago. And this is why they were able to have these things in place for the communication strategies, where they were able to take these initiatives for the public screening, they were able to distribute supplies, and they were able to implement implement testing, contact tracing, and isolation. And South Korea and Hong Kong did this as well. Now, Charles, you're talking about uh, learning as one of the, the main points of your uh, model. Now, it seems like the learning you're talking about is from one crisis to the next, so from SARS to coronavirus. Have you seen any, uh, any examples of learning inside of the crisis? I wrote a book about civil protection cooperation with some colleagues looking at the EU civil protection mechanism. That was more designed for natural hazard disaster events and the idea that when one country is overwhelmed by an event that they can get help, make a request, and the others will supply things. You may have heard that the Italians tried to activate that for medical supplies and no one answered, in, at least initially. And uh, that's because this wasn't really designed for a crisis that overwhelmed everyone at once or hit countries simultaneously. So failure of imagination from the European Union. It's very hard for the EU is not going to be the frontline responder to a crisis. I mean, that's the national governments. They protect their healthcare systems very jealously. But even the exercise that I looked at at the time, which took place place, I think, back in 2005. I mean, it showed a lot of the type of problems that we've actually seen here, which is countries resorting to their own national systems 
and we see gaps in supplies. So, I mean, one of the things that was suggested then was a stockpiling medical supplies. And that's actually now what the EU has announced they're going to do through this RESC-EU, which is have a joint program to try to mobilize medical supplies, buy medical equipment for hospitals that's totaling 50 million euros. What are your thoughts looking at your five-failure model as to how Sweden has approached this crisis? Well, Sweden, I think, is struggling a bit now. And, of course, it's so early, one wants to be a little bit cautious about making judgments. The one thing we don't know is their capabilities and to what extent what they're doing is based on their capabilities or lack thereof. And I think that your observation there about countries being more prepared during the Cold War is very true. There was much more investments on what would happen if a country was attacked, nuclear weapon attack, like in the United States, where they actually had these stashes of stockpiles all over the place. And then Sweden had that as well. And the Swedish response initially was the sort of testing, contact trace, and isolation. But then they apparently didn't have the capacity to continue that. And they're trying to flatten this curve so their medical systems don't get overwhelmed. As I talked before about the success cases, what it doesn't seem like Sweden has been as effective about doing are these other initiatives, which is in getting a good social distancing procedures in place and other types of activities like the mass screenings. It doesn't even seem that they have the capacity for the proper protective gear for the medical people. I saw an article about Singapore also being a success story in terms of its medical personnel not dying, treating the people who have COVID-19, and they laid that to good stockpiles of the proper protective equipment. If I can ask one last question, um, in terms of systems of government, I mean, we, we usually make this distinction between uh, democracies and authoritarian countries when we're dealing with this, uh, the China example versus the South Korea example, for instance, but also what the systems like Sweden having one quite powerful federal government, but at the same time having this very powerful agencies. How do these systems of government impact the managing of a very acute crisis like this one? Well, I mean, depending on the system, it matters a lot. Even though I think it's justifiable to be very critical of, in the U.S., the federal response and the slow response and the failures, and Trump bears a lot of responsibility for that. The fact that uh, you have a complex system and then under any circumstances, it's very hard to manage the coordination of the federal response and then the, the multi-level coordination between the different states and local government. I would also say that it means that good governance matters. So in California, where they saw that the curves are not as steep as in New York, the governor of California, he declared a state of emergency on March 4th. So early action is important, regardless of your system. These are lessons that go back to the Spanish flu of uh, 1918. Once again, a lot of the success things that worked, which you compare which cities did better than others, some of the same lessons about clear communication, the social distancing, the isolation, this is important. You know, we started today's program discussing failures of learning. What do you think we can do this time so that on the next go-round we actually salvage some of this knowledge so, I mean, one, as Eric said, I think we already are going to need a lot of intra-crisis learning. And, I mean, he asked me about Trump, and I think Trump actually, I think, has learned a lot. I mean, he started taking this more seriously when he declared a national emergency on March 13th, but his public messaging was very uneven. But, I mean, when I listened to him yesterday, I mean, he, he sounded scared, and he actually made a distinction about how this was not the flu. But the U.S. and wealthy countries have a lot of adaptive capacity, so I think they're now mobilizing. Would have been better if it was done much earlier. Unfortunately, human memory and policy memory tends to be very short. So you have a reactive, everyone throws a lot of resources and 
time and attention on a problem, then when it fades, the policy attention and investment also fades. We are very likely to deal with more deadly pandemics in the future. Okay, so Dr. Charles Parker from Uppsala University, associate professor there. Great to have you here on Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, Episode 6. Certainly, it was my pleasure. Nice talking to both of you. Great to hear from you. Thank you, Charles. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, give us a rating, give us a review, subscribe. You can also find us on Twitter at Corona Crisis Pod. 